I have found the greater the level of authenticity and in, 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 it's truly bravery that we can display by being authentic and real in our storytelling, um, in, in our testimony telling, the more that it makes people stay with us instead of retreating in that self-preservation mechanism that keeps them from actually being able to believe that somebody can have compassion on me. I felt like I was uniquely uh, broken. Church, honestly, you know, back then, but I think even today, is kind of the last place that people think about going if they want help or support in dealing with a heterosexual pornography issue or or if yeah. they start sleeping with a girlfriend or that, you know, or boyfriend or whatever, uh, the last place you think of going in some cases is toward the church, which I think is tragic. And we want to see that shift. You know, Jesus wasn't moved by understanding. He wasn't moved by, um, he, he was moved by compassion. And compassion is that emotion that allows you to stay in relationship with somebody that's guilty with without any fears. And we have to... We, be, we have to be washed with the compassion of Jesus to be able to be authentic enough for people to feel safe, that, that we're not going to reject them, we're not going to judge them, we're not going to hang them out to dry, we're not going to be lambasting them with the next five sermons because they've been honest with me in my office. Hey, Matt, thanks so much for joining us for our brand new podcast for Love and Truth Network. I'm excited that you can be here. Um, I'm particularly excited to talk with you because um, you as a pastor uh, in the Northeast, uh, we've connected a number of times and you've received, uh, your church has received ministry from, from us a number of times. We've been so blessed by you and by your church as well. And I just love the the idea and the concept of of talking with um, pastors and Christian leaders about what they're facing, what their perspectives are on some of the topics we talk about. Of course, our main area of focus is on helping churches develop environments that are both safe and transformational when it comes to this broad spectrum of sexual and relational wholeness that, that Jesus really provides for us um, through, uh, through his power, through the cross, through this Holy Spirit working within us. So, I'm excited to uh, to talk with you today about some of these topics. So thanks for being Absolutely. with us. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and and I love to hear from uh, anyone that we're talking with, is I'd love to just take you know ten minutes or so just to get a uh, to hear some of your story, to hear some of how uh, you came to Christ, and and some of the challenges that you faced uh, growing up, and those kinds of things, and and really how Jesus has brought shift and change into your life. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm so appreciative, Gary, of the opportunity. Um, have have really appreciated our, our interactions and in, in the the friendship and the ministry relationship that we've developed um, with, with you, but also with your family. And, and um, it's been a big part of, uh, of my personal life, my marriage life, and, and our, our church life as well. So, mm. um so I'm a uh, pastor's son. Uh, I grew up Mennonite in the conservative Mennonite conference here in the Northeast. And uh, my mom actually was Amish in Ohio. Uh, my parents met during voluntary service uh, in the early 20s, um, got married, moved back to the Northeast where my dad is from. 
Um, his father was the pastor of a, a church, kind of a church plant, missional Mennonite church in our area. And so I grew up in that really small church, 40 to 60 people, pretty much my entire life. Um, just really committed, went to everything, knew everybody, you know, kind of really small rural church family life. Um, I'm the youngest of three boys. My dad also uh, owned a electrical contracting company. So he, we would uh, fix appliances and wire houses and uh, lots of work, lots of work. And, and so very early on, I understood the idea that um, faith and um, attentiveness or, or work ethic kind of go hand in hand, uh, which is a wonderful positive. Uh, my parents were great, great people, taught me a lot about faith, taught me a lot about the Bible. And, um, and my church experience was really, really good. Um, my wife's family, my, my wife's father is a, um, is a church planter in our area as well. Uh, grew up as a as one of um, I think 15 children and uh, in a Catholic family and, and was radically saved uh, late in high school or just right after high school and um, and so then he became a uh, a pastor in our area planting churches full gospel ministry and um, and so that was a an interesting combination when we when we met prior to meeting my wife though. In my middle school, high school days, uh, being the youngest and, and enjoying people and, and liking to uh, to be in the middle of everything, uh, got involved in athletics and and all of the things that go along with that, and uh, found out very early on that I really I liked um, I liked being in social situations. I really enjoyed the attention of people, the attention of of girls, and and that was really some of the core motivators. And that unfortunately didn't um, allow me or or afford me the character that I needed to be able to make my faith my own. Um, we have a local uh, summer Bible camp called Beaver Camp in our area, um, and it was just a fantastic place to go. But one of the components of Beaver Camp is that they, in the 80s, were very heavy on evangelism. And it was a wonderful opportunity for me, maybe for the first time, to be alone with people my age and having to learn to be accountable for my faith. Uh, I gave my heart to the Lord at officially at 13 or 14 at that summer camp. Made a classic mistake though, leaving camp and didn't tell anybody. Uh, and so what happened was, within a month or so, I was back into the same kind of rhythms that I had been into before, and and so that just led me to um, kind of what I would say living a, a little bit of a, a spiritually schizophrenic life, where I would keep it together in and around the faith community as much as I needed to. Um, to kind of keep them out of my way, and then I was pursuing my own interests outside of that, which I think is common for a lot of uh, young mm-hmm. men that growing up in the, in the church is, is they don't know how to assimilate their faith into their regular life, and they end up kind of living that dichotomy of what I know I should be and, and kind of what I want to be, and, and that was definitely me. Um, went to college to play basketball. I tell everybody I, my three priorities leaving for college, um, uh, because I hadn't really drink alcohol or done anything in high school, being in a conservative family, um, but I didn't have a lot of opportunities afforded to me. So I, I wanted to play basketball, drink beer, and, and chase girls. Those were my my three goals for college. And uh, I achieved all of those uh, the very first day I was there. Um, mm. And so the the wonderful thing for me, though, in the midst of all that is, is at a um, kind of a youth Christian festival, uh, I met what would end up being my future wife. Um, she just came along with her cousin who came along with my cousin to this Christian festival that my youth group was going to. And I actually met her the weekend I was going to college. And I, 
in a lot of ways, attribute that to really saving me from a lot of the chaos. That was the, that was the moment that I began assimilating my faith in my personhood, uh, because my wife was a very strong, um, committed Christian and, and really began to challenge me in a lot of things as to how I was going to live my life and what my priorities were. And it didn't happen outside of me. It actually happened inside of me, which was one of the key moments where I feel like the Holy Spirit began to draw me into something. Because I found myself, we, I met her on the weekend, went to college on a Saturday, uh, and by Wednesday of that very first week, I told my roommate, I just cannot get this girl. And she was younger than me. I can't get this girl out of my mind. I'm in a college full of girls, but I can't stop thinking about this high school girl back home. Mm. Um, and that just led to a, a, a six-year relationship that we um, that just kept growing and growing and growing before we finally got engaged and got married. And mm. um, in that story, I, I attribute whatever that was that God allowed me to experience in my affection for her, I think was setting the stage for me to let the Holy Spirit really begin to draw me away from things and, and into much better things. Um, mm. And so we got married. I was 24, just was a teacher and a basketball coach in our local community. Um, we had our first son at 28, and that was probably the key moment. We just had a men's meeting last week where we talked about responsibility, Christian responsibility. And I think when my son was born and I held him and, and we made eye contact, you know, a minute after him being born, that's when this whole idea of, boy, you're responsible for a lot more than you've ever thought of before. And, um, and it really began, I think, to, to crystallize this idea that I was called to something way more than just trying to take care of some of my unspoken needs. Um, yeah. And I think um, the love of my wife and the responsibility that I felt towards my newborn son really began to make me hungry for a real earnest faith. And, um, you know, I had the benefit of having a father-in-law who is a pastor, a father who is a pastor. My wife and I were attending both churches simultaneously, working in both churches simultaneously. Uh, but I also was surrounded by some key friends that I had grown up with that had moved back to our home area and were kind of experiencing similar um, urges and, and, and kind of conflicts with what we were doing and who we knew we, we wanted to become. And so uh, one key moment, we were at a bachelor party in Toronto at a rooftop bar after a baseball game, and um, we're in the midst of this bar experience, and there's four of us standing in a circle uh, drinking our, our beer, talking about Jesus. Mm. And we were challenging each other, asking for clarification, quoting scripture to one another. So in the midst of this just unbelievably chaotic environment, there is these four, a small band of brothers that were beginning to really like, what is this thing that we are calling faith? How is it different than what we thought it was? And what's really coming next? And what's super interesting, three of those four guys are now pastors. Uh, one of them is my associate pastor. Another one is the guy that took over my dad's church um, after we had started the church that we're in right now. So just a, an interesting moment for me to reflect on, um, and I think a, a, a huge moment as I look back on on what kind of put us forward um, in the future. And, and so as we continue to live our married life and have children, we realized um, in our community there was a need for uh, a church expression that was different than what we had had. Uh, amazing churches in our area, really foundational, biblically relevant and true churches. Um, but we felt there was something different 
And so we reached out to Eliza's dad, who was a church planter, and we ended up planting the church that I'm the pastor of now on a Sunday evening service because we rented from the Methodist church in town. So uh, we had to have services Sunday night, and it just became uh, enough of a different feel that it began to grow and grow and grow. We planted our own or we built our own building where we are right now, about to go into our third iteration of expansion, um, and we've stayed Sunday nights, and um, God has just been faithful to us um, to, to continue to grow that work. Simultaneously, though, when we started that work, I left teaching and started a biblical counseling ministry in our area. And so that this all happened around 15 years ago. And so both of those two entities, the church that we planted and the biblical counseling ministry, have both grown and, and continue to be viable uh, throughout that whole journey over the last 15 or so years. Oh, that's awesome, Matt. I um, uh, And I don't want to get you off track from something else you might want to share about your story. But one of the things I remember uh, in in first meeting with you and, and spending time with you in your church is that, uh, you know, there are some elders there and there's some other some of the guys in the church that you've known since you were babies. I mean, it's it's so cool to see that that long, long standing um, connection that's that's been there all of these years. Uh, which I think is unusual. I don't. I don't uh, recall, um, you know, talking with pastors who have had that kind of longevity of um, of connection with, you know, leaders in their church or, um, you know, really anyone in their church. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. A rural community is a different. It's a it's a different thing altogether. It's so yeah. amazing um, from that collective standpoint, but. It, also, in, in small rural communities, it's really difficult to have people allow you to change. Uh, once, mm. you, once you are kind of known and described by people, they have a tendency to want you to stay right there. Um, and yeah. so that's been a really uh, interesting journey for uh, myself and, and my, my associate pastor um, because we, we both grew up in this area. We both made mistakes in this area. We were in the same church when we were children, really great friends. Um, in each other's weddings, have been really best friends our whole life. Um, but now here we are talking about this this Jesus who radically transformed us from what we once were to who we are and, and are continuing to grow into. And I give the community a ton of credit to allow us to have that transformation take place right in mm-hmm. front of them. Um, yeah. I say it from the pulpit that I, I preach to people that knew me when I was 16. And they still listen to me. That's amazing. I mean, and so <laughs> all true. I can all I can confess is the fact that I once was dead and and now I'm alive. And the only reason why those that transition happened was because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And and so sometimes it can be a limitation, but uh, confronting people right in real time with a story that they watched their whole life um, is it's it's very raw. It's very revealing mm-hmm. because I can't hide anything because everyone knows it already. No. Um, and so it's um, it's it's been it's had its challenges, but the the relationships that we've been able to develop and how we've been able to see that transformation take place in each other's lives is, is really it's deep. Mm. That's awesome. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about, of course, is a ministry that focuses on equipping the church and, and pastors in these particular areas of restoring relational and sexual wholeness. I mean, one of the things I've learned, I, I mean, I grew up in the church and I, I kept thinking for years, and I think people that w- are about to hear what I'm going to say, many people will relate to what I'm about to say. I felt like I was the only one. I mean, I felt like I was uniquely 
uh, broken, that I was uniquely my draw toward pornography, my draw toward sexual sin. Um, uh, and then uh, in addition to that, of course, what really felt unique and, and broken beyond belief is, is when I realized that I was developing um, or, or became aware that I was more same-sex attracted than I was opposite-sex attracted. Um, but all of that just felt so incredibly broken, so unbelievably shameful. And, um, uh, and, and the church, honestly, you know, back then, but I think even today, is kind of the last place that people think about going if they want help or support in dealing with a heterosexual pornography issue or, or if yeah. they start sleeping with a girlfriend or that, you know, or boyfriend or whatever, uh, the last place you think of going in some cases is toward the church, which I think is tragic. And we want to see that shift. Um, but what do you feel like, um, what, what ways do you think the church could most improve on walking alongside of people that may, let's just first talk about people who, you know, we don't know their story. They haven't, they haven't come right. forward. They, we have no idea maybe who is sitting in the, in the chairs of our church or the pews of our church or whatever, who are dealing with sexual sin or struggling with those issues. How can we create an environment to encourage them and invite them to come forward? Do you think? Well, I mean, you raised an interesting point. Um, so anytime you feel guilty, a guilt response is a hiding, it, it elicits hiding behavior. And we see yeah. that in the garden and we've seen that, you know, just in counseling and in, in my own heart, you know, I, I break the windows in the barn when I was a little child and I, I, I hide from my father who's about to go mm. home from work. It's just yeah. the, it's the nature of your heart to want to, because you're afraid of the consequences of, of how they're going to feel about you because you feel bad about yourself. And so you, you called it broken and I would have called it dirty, but mm. it's the same guilt. It's just, it responds differently depending on your natural proclivity and emotional range. Um, and so when I felt guilty because of pornography or my desire to um, to not obey rules or whatever it might have been that I was struggling with, because I struggled with all of those things, um, mm. I felt dirty. I felt perverse. I, I wouldn't have called it brokenness back then. Yeah. I, I, I felt like I deserved to be put in jail. Mm -hmm. And um, and that was a distancing emotion that I had. And and what I have found is that. What shocks people when we are raw and authentic with them is, yes, me too, like, I'm, like, there's more broken people, but they also understand this, this immediate hidden response that kicks up in me to try to protect myself from your judgment. Yeah. And so one of the best things that, that we've been able to do, um, well, just in my own life is when I'm in a one-on-one -on -one counseling situation, even from the pulpit, is the I have found the greatest the greater the level of authenticity and 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 it's truly bravery that we can display yeah. by being authentic and real in our storytelling, um, in, in our testimony telling, the more that it makes people stay with us instead of retreating in that self preservation mechanism that keeps them from actually being able to believe that somebody can have compassion on me. Jesus mm -hmm. said. You know, Jesus wasn't moved by understanding. He wasn't moved by, um, he, he was moved by compassion. And compassion is that emotion that allows you to stay in relationship with somebody that's guilty with, without any fears. And we have, to, we, be, we have to be washed with the compassion of Jesus to be able to be authentic enough for people to feel safe. That, that we're not going to reject them, we're not going to judge them, we're not going to hang them out to dry, 
We're not going to be lambasting them with the next five sermons because they've been honest with me in my office in the counseling scenario. Um, And the the greatest way to do that I have found is to model what it sounds like, looks like, and feels like to actually allow people to have access to you like that. Mm -hmm. It's scary, but but honestly, once I understood the dynamic that Satan, Satan has power when you keep the rock turned over, and the minute you fold that rock over and the sun can hit that, he loses all of his power. Yes. And um, and that's been really big for our leadership team, but it's been big, I think, for our community and the people that have, have come to us because um, we're the first ones to tell you we, we are not like these, you know, spiritual leaders that are perfect. We've, done, we've always done a perfect and follow us because we've figured it all out. You know, we are on a journey, and, and the cool thing about the journey is it's bathed in grace and bathed in biblical truth. And those two things don't stand in opposition to each other. They are, they are partners. Yeah. No, that's really good. There's so many things, um, as you're sharing, that come to my mind. One is, I, um, you know, I, I, it, it um, saddens me and also frustrates me uh, the way that um, pastors are put on a pedestal of um, and I've, I I worked as a um, in pastoral leadership for twelve years as well, but the way that pastors are put on a pedestal um, as if you know they can do no wrong or as if they're not supposed to um, you know that the, the they can't be human um, and and I think that that is a big flaw I think in the church, but at the same time I also recognize that many times we as pastors have um, unintentionally trained people to put us on those pedestals because of our lack of vulnerability, because of our lack of real sharing, we come across oftentimes as, uh, oftentimes as, you know, let me help you. I've kind of, I mean, we would never say, I don't know any pastor that's like, oh, hey, I've arrived. But, but the, the way that we project because of our lack of real sharing, like you just mentioned, Hey, I've struggled with pornography. Well, there's all kinds of pastors that have struggled with pornography that have never allowed that word to pass their lips, you know, from the pulpit or in any conversation. And, um, and I just, it's that lack of vulnerability, I think, that oftentimes creates um, uh, a, a response from the congregation of just kind of thinking, oh, you know, you have arrived and, and you're trying to help, you know, poor folk like me um, uh, get there too. And I loved what you said about, hey, we're on a journey, like pastors are on a journey together. I mean, there might be a few steps ahead, of of where others are i mean hopefully that's true but but right. it's it's this movement together you know toward and with jesus right to into kingdom work yeah yeah and i you know there's there's a few different ways you can try to hide something i think when i was a kid you know and, and um i would try to hide something from my brothers you you either hide it in a place where they're never going to think to look or you hide it so like out in a demonstratively obvious place that they just, oh, there's no way that he'd put it there, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think for pastors or for e- individuals, um, we have a tendency to like, we want to hide ourselves in a place where nobody's going to find us, or we get so big with our personality that people won't ever get past the bigness. Yeah. Um, and, and so being, allowing yourself to be ordinary and part of the landscape as a leader, pastor is one of the most humble things that you can do. And yes. the enemy wants to push you in one of those two extremes. And, and so to, to fight that instinct to shield yourself from other people by being withdrawn or being flamboyant, um, 
those extremes are really masks that we that we utilize so that people can't really get into just the ordinary everyday. I mean, you read your Bible. I mean, we've got a Moses does these amazing things, spends his whole life doing amazing things. And then the way that the Bible summarizes him, it says Moses walked with the Lord and then he died. <laughs> yep. It's a very yep. ordinary epitaph about him, right? So it's we have to reframe the way that we look at the journey of our relationship with Christ. And then um, we, we preach from the authenticity of who God has called us to be, um, what we know to be the truth of the word. Um, it really should not be about the celebrity of the pastor's journey. It should mm-hmm. be the celebrity of the, the journey of Christ, the promises of Christ, the faithfulness and goodness of God, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. And the more that we can get out of the way and let that shine, um, the, the better we're going to, to be communicating these truths. And I actually think the more attractive we'll be. Um, I think the enemy's movement to, 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 making, um, to making Christian leaders feel like they have to be hidden and then killing them when it's revealed that they can't possibly be as good as they're making themselves out to be. Um, yes. We have to unhitch ourselves from that horse and get back to a real authentic, uh, authentic um, real um, discourse about the fact that we all struggle. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've, struggled with, um, I've struggled with sexual temptation since I was a young child. Um, mm-hmm. Just watching, watching things, seeing things that I never should have seen at the age that I was at, listening mm-hmm. to conversations on the bus and in locker rooms that I never should have been a part of. And then not having any framework for asking those questions, because I didn't even know what the question was, really. Right. Um, And then the curiosity that comes with that. And then as you grow and you hear other people who have had other experiences explain it to you completely wrong, it -hmm. it just it creates this baseline of of perverse curiosity. And with with no framework to understand it, it just rises into all all kinds of things. And when there's nobody that you look up to that's willing to say, yeah, no, I, I have those feelings too. And here's some things that have helped me. And here's mm-hmm. what the Bible says about these things. Not to make them feel dirty, but to make them feel free. Like, yeah, this is normal to feel this way. And there there's a place for me to engage in this curiosity in a framework that makes me feel safe instead of makes me feel completely out of control. Yes, yes. Well, and you brought up, I so agree with that. You brought up something a couple of minutes ago. Um, and I love, the, I love the, the rural, um, uh, word picture of unhitching ourselves from the horse. Right. So, um, yeah. but the, the, um, it, it's so true. And I think of, as you were talking, I'm thinking of the numbers of pastors that have talked to me at a conference or, um, over the phone or in some other setting where they've simply said, like, they've listened to me talk about vulnerability and transparency, and they listen to me share my own story in, in a very open way, not hopefully not in oversharing kind of way, but in an open way. And uh, we can share, by the way, just as a sidebar, we can share in an incredibly open and transparent way without sliming people with details, right? So we right. need to, to learn that most of us aren't even getting close to to that because we're we're so... We have so many fig leaves, you know, um, hiding our, our stuff. Um, yep. but I think of pastors who have, who have said, man, I would, um, I'm, I'm terrified of doing what you're talking about, but, and so, but I also, I recognize the freedom of that. I recognize just 
being a, a man who loves Jesus and and uh, or a woman who loves Jesus and wanting to um, to serve in, in the capacity he's called me to, that my church would I'd be fired. You know, I'd I'd lose I'd lose everything if I were to ever talk about some of the stuff that that I used to struggle with. Not even they might not even be dealing with any form of pornography issue. And oh, by the way, there's lots of pastors who are living out, you know, uh, a double life and they are preaching and teaching and and they're living in that miserable agony of being involved in sexual sin, pornography, masturbation, maybe other things too. And, um, but, but for those who haven't even, who aren't even living that out, they feel like if I were even share the, the truth of my past, I would be fired. And so, you know, that, that's a, I, I grieve for people in that position because first of all, the body of Christ needs your story. The body of Christ right. needs to know that that Jesus. How did Jesus work in your life, and and um, what kind of hope can you actually give me uh, for for a way that God can transform my life? And so when we're when we're stuck in a place of feeling like I'm going to be fired or I'm going to be so horrific, horrifically shamed if I share this, um, you know, I mean, I have some thoughts about that. But what are what are your thoughts about how pastors can can kind of handle that or deal with that or still move toward vulnerability. Yeah, I think one of the, just the short answer is that's, it's, it's a lie, right? So, so one of the things I do with people is, is train them to take thoughts that they have, take them captive, measure them against the word of God, but finding where they have or, originated from. Mm-hmm. And then when you trace down the origin story of, of where some of our thoughts come from, we find very quickly that the majority of those types of thoughts are, are coming from the enemy to keep us hidden or to make us feel frustrated or divided. Um, the reality is, is um, in marriage counseling, when I talk to couples and I ask them to be honest, what I tell them is your inability to be honest is restricting you from the greatest gift that God has prepared for you to walk in. So what you would like to have happen is for your, your record to be expunged. You don't want anybody to know any of these pieces of information, but yet you're still going to have to walk around with it. I'm going to give you the greatest gift so if you can open this up to your partner, your partner now becomes a helpmate and a promise keeper with you, and you'll actually feel like there's somebody walking with you. And yeah. that's a heavy lift for both parties. And so what, what I've been able to see in relationship is when honesty enters a relationship, the relationship gets stronger. You receive more compassion. Somebody else knows, which takes most of the power of the hiddenness away, and you become, number one, accountable to the word and to that person, but you also become covered. And the church has done a bad job of balancing the difference between covering and covering up. Mm. And our, our so hiddenness true. wants to get, wants to cover up things. And what God wants to do is lay his hand on us. He wants to hedge us in, which is like a horse in a pasture that they always are trying to eat the grass through the wire because they think the grass outside the pasture is better than the inside of the pasture. But the Bible tells us that the boundary lines are pleasant. If you will just stay inside what I have created for you, Mm -hmm. you will have abundance more than you could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. And so what vulnerability has done for me is it's created a relationship with my wife that, that has allowed me to feel covered, protected, encouraged, accountable, um, supported, and it's honest, it's open. And now we have developed that same format, that same platform with my eldership team. Just last night at our elders meeting, we were repenting to one another. We were confessing to one another uh, areas of of sexual temptation, um, pride issues, judgment issues, um, compassion fatigue, 
all of the things that spiritual leaders go through, we're mm-hmm. just laying it down on the floor in front of each other and then praying for each other in those areas. Um, that dynamic, just openness, not, we didn't solve anything. You know, we didn't, you know, hey, I'm going to pray the Spirit to remove that and it, it's gone and we never feel. We're in process. We believe that the Spirit will help us as we pray to Him and walk out these principles. Um, and so I, I think as, as leaders to not be afraid of the unbelievable power that comes with authenticity and the very thing that your mind is telling you you're going to lose, the opposite is what you're going to gain. Um, mm. we, we just have to confront that lie. Yeah, that's so true. That's so good. I, um, you know, in talking with uh, some other pastors and, and them just, they feel like they're in a place with uh, the majority of their um, elder team or those who are, you know, have authority, you know, with them and, and, and over them in the church. You know, there's, I think back on some of my own early experiences in the church as well. There were definitely people in, in leadership roles who who would basically just deny that anybody should be struggling. I, cer- certainly not a pastor, certainly not an elder, um, should be struggling with any of these issues. And when I say struggling, I mean I mean even tempted. Um, and and so as as pastors have um, have just in uh, just tried to broach the elders with, you know, maybe doing a message on pornography or on sexual sin or the the challenges within the church and I mean, some pastors have just been told, no, we, I mean, we're just not even, we don't, we don't, the church isn't the place to talk about that stuff, which of course I believe the church is the one place to talk about those kind of things from a biblical worldview perspective. But I, um, I mean, I'm a big proponent for pastors really sitting down with their spouse, first of all, uh, you know, with their, um, and definitely having the conversation there. And um, and bathing this whole thing in prayer, getting some godly counsel from you know from either a biblical counselor, a Christian counselor, or or maybe some uh, uh, a, a brother that or brothers that they um, have in their lives or sisters. But the um, but I the idea of a pastor staying for another five or ten or twenty years in an environment where he is hedged in so much so that he cannot eke out a word of of hope or real compassion or identification with people's struggles in sexual matters particularly um i to me that's just agonizing i can't even imagine living i i did live in it but i can't imagine going back to that world again it's such a prison uh of of religiosity and yeah. and so i think that um with much prayer and um and certainly involving their spouse and all of that that if there's oneness and there's unity there really laying it out before the elders and explaining the direction that you want to go in. But if they're not willing to go there, like I'd rather know that within a few months of, of kind of getting this revelation from God that I need to be leading in this way. I'd rather know that short in a, in a shorter period of time, rather than wasting 10 years um, of, of finally figuring out beating my head against the wall and just being like, we're not on the same page. I, um, I, I, that I would rather know to either go to a church that's more open to that or to be, or to start a church, uh, where I can kind of build the foundation from, you know, from that perspective. Um, what are your thoughts about that particularly, Matt? You know, you, you, you're poking at a, a, a large grizzly bear right there. Um, it's <laughs> <laughs> true. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's difficult because my experience is not, um, the same as everybody's experience. And I know there's a lot of uh, pastors that have 
you know, they hear me talk about a um, an eldership team that meets twice a month. The first month is business. The second month is is a, like a band of brothers. Is mm-hmm. is for our personal development, sharing. You know, and there, that's just something that's not attainable. Whether the structure is not there, or the trust isn't there, or or, or for whatever reason, um, I have a lot of compassion on pastors that um, it, it's it is a vocation, it's a calling, but it also is an occupation. There's a job component. And they're leading far larger churches than ours. I mean, our church is not small, but it's it's not a large church. And so we're afforded privileges, maybe, that you aren't afforded in larger operations and maybe even in larger cities. Um, but I, I would challenge the approach that I'm I'm a, a leader of the corporation, this church corporation, and I'm leading the corporation in a direction. Um, I don't see any of that evidence in the Bible that that's how we should approach uh, the way that we are caring for our congregations. And so, yes, there's work to be done as far as managing and, and leading people and, and being dynamic, um, you know, transcendent leaders in the community on some of the areas that, that have to do with leading a business. That I have no problem with those things. But if that's the primary responsibility that we go to in our minds, I think that's just another way of, of hiding the treasure. We're hiding mm. behind being businessmen. And the Bible does not call you to be a businessman. It calls you to be a bond servant. A mm. bond servant of Christ is what Paul defines himself as over and over and over again. And um, nor are we called to be an activist, where we are running around trying to um, change people's minds. Or We are ambassadors and bond servants. We are just witnesses of the glory of God that's happened in our personal lives. And And so the more that we can uh, fight that urge to hide behind titles that the Bible doesn't even give us. I think the more dynamic we can be and being allowing ourselves to be open and realizing that there's lots of statistics talking about people no longer feeling that the church is is a relevant part of their lives. And um, and you can see very quickly, call it postmodern, post-Christian, you can call it whatever you want. But when the people decide that they no longer need the heartbeat of grace and truth as their guiding um, tenant for the way that they are going to approach their thinking, um, it's an indication that the the church possibly has stopped communicating to them at the core location of their biggest needs. Who am yeah. I? Where do I fit in? And what difference can I make? Like we we need to start speaking to those core. And this is what you're talking about. And and when you've come to our church, everybody was excited because everybody gets fired up about about the issues around sexual brokenness. They, they're expecting an ad, activist rally where Gary's leading us and, boy, that lifestyle is terrible. And, and this LGBTQ movement that is, you know, polluting our children, they, they have this activist mentality. And you get up there and, and you talk about your lifestyle, but then you also challenge the narrative of, listen, we why do we have torches and pitchforks like that is not at all what the bible tells us we are to be people of compassion if we believe that we have hope why are we packaging our hope in in pitchforks and torches it makes no sense Mm -hmm. so there has to be a way for us to be authentic and compassionate and real with a community of people that are really hurting the core question of who they are at their very identity is being attacked and all we're doing is jumping on these uh, political activism or whatever activism we want to, because it, it does elicit strong emotion, but our response to that strong emotion 
I think in a lot of ways is not biblical. And um, and we, we have to get to a place where we're dealing with it personally before we can ever deal with it publicly. And that's, I remember we had a conversation after you had come, I think the second time. And um, I said, Gary, what, what do we do? I mean, we, we, we want to get so better at this discipleship thing. What do you think our next step is? He, and, and I remember the words. You said, if, if you won't do it yourselves, you've got nothing to say to anybody else. Mm-hmm. You have to start this with your leadership team. And I said, okay, that's what we're doing then. And I think it was two years ago, we made a shift and we began to walk into this dynamic, vulnerable relationship model every single month with my core leadership team. And now we're trickling that out two years later. We're just starting to trickle that out to our our next level, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Mm, so we're going right. to our next level, level of leadership. And if our entire leadership team understands this is the expectation, they're going to create that culture in all of the departments that they're a part of. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love about that, Matt, and, and um, you know, I know this from my own personal experience, but I've also seen it repeated over and over and over again, is that, you know, we as Christians who have a lot of secrets, um, our greatest desire is to never have those secrets known uh, by anybody but God, you know, in our prayer closet, confession, whatever, on our way to work is reporting out our, you know, guts to him and confession of sin. Uh, but, um, but that's actually not freedom. Uh, freedom actually comes from not caring who knows about our brokenness. And not caring who knows about um, our past or uh, and when I say not caring, I don't mean that we don't have shame over sin, um, appropriate shame or guilt would be a better way of saying it. That we don't have a, a, a healthy guilt about our sin. We should. Um, but rather, when God has met us and God has forgiven us and God has set us free, he gives us the opportunity to share his story in our lives. It's not just our story. It's really his story in our lives that gives other people hope and encouragement and and what I found where real freedom is, isn't in constantly looking over our shoulder, trying to make sure nobody sees our, our history and our crap, but rather it's it's being willing for God to use that in any way that he wants to uh, and, and just not caring anymore. And that that's what real freedom is. And and I think, um, you know, even with uh, w- with what you, you've been sharing uh, and what we've been talking about for pastors and Christian leaders, it really does lie, I think, in. Um, in that willingness to become a band of brothers, to, to, to develop bands of sisters in our churches. And those, it's not just, you know, people can say that. I mean, um, the idea of bands is a, is a long, uh, you know, United Methodist history and um, comes out of, um, you know, Wesleyan um, perspective. Uh, John Wesley certainly uh, uh, had this idea of bands. But it's not just about groups of accountability of three or four or five guys or women. It's not just that we're in accountability, like we've grabbed our, our clipboard with the notes of what you're supposed to do and not supposed to be doing, and we're kind of going through that, but rather it's relational accountability. It's that the accountability flows out of the relationship that we have with one another and the and the fact that we, we grow in our love for each other, we grow in our desire to have each other's back. Uh, in prayer and in encouragement and support. And yes, there's times for correction. I mean, we see correction all throughout the scriptures, but but I think that correction usually comes on the basis of relationship or on the basis mm-hmm. of um, of community, uh, of a community that loves the person that they're they're reaching out to. And the correction is about, like, we, we want more for you. We want something better for you. Where you're going is destructive. It's not producing 
human thriving, which is what God desires. And so, um, I mean, I just think all of those have to be done in the context of, of, um, of transparency and vulnerability. Um, otherwise, again, we just tend to keep everything under wraps and we're talking about theology, which is, which is vitally important, but we're only discussing theology and we're kind of arguing about things, not so much about, look, here's my life. Here's the good and the bad and the ugly. And I, if I'm going to really move toward Jesus, I have to move as an integrated person, not as a person who's full of different compartments that I pull open and shut depending on who I'm around. Uh, and I, you guys have really responded, I think, to that, to those ideas and those messages incredibly well. And I think part of it might be because our community is inherently religious. Like there's some great churches, foundational churches that have been here. And so a lot of people have grown up in a religious model Mm-hmm. And they've they've realized that that religious model can't solve the the guilt problem that they experience yep. and the hiddenness problem. And and they realize very quickly, man, I, if I try harder and if I give myself to God more, I actually feel even more guilty. So if I I know I need to and I want to increase my commitment level to Christ, but as I do it, it increases this conflict that I'm experiencing. That makes me want to run away. And so that causes people to come in for a while and go back out for a while and come in for a while because they, they're just trying to manage this conflict. Yeah. Um, the answer, you, you raised the word accountability, accountability, submission, any of these words, we look at them as such a, a disciplinarian mindset whereby somebody is keeping me from making a huge mistake. Um, it's like when you, you're you know, you're playing with your children and you're constantly watching to make sure they don't go darting out into the road. Your job is to protect them from harm. And we continue to think of ourselves as children, whereby God is just trying to stop us from having fun. That's mm. all he's doing. And, right. and so we're, I'm constantly held accountable for these instincts I have to run in the road because, boy, that would be fun. I might get hit, but I might not. And I might have a great time while I'm in the road. Um, we don't understand accountability from a religious mindset removes relationship. Yeah. It's strictly pay-for-play accountability. What, what we don't realize that we get in accountability is this just really rich undercurrent of thoughtfulness. Like the idea that my wife right now, wherever she is, is thinking about me is so grounding to me, is so helpful mm-hmm for me to feel confident to do what I'm about to do next. And she's thinking and about the I'm, whole you, not just yeah. an image that you're casting for her. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So that type of relationship, um, it, 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 like you said before, produces so much freedom. But boy, am I accountable to her. I'm accountable with my thought life, with my attentions, mm-hmm. with, with my ability to, to, to persevere through my sin conditions. All of those things, I'm, that's an act of honor to me for me to offer to her my best. But that's not like, boy, she's going to punish me if I don't. Yep. It's, gonna, it's more of, why would, I, why would I not want to? Because of the way that I know she loves me. And then you take that you, and you multiply it by a million in, in your relationship with Christ. When you understand what, what his compassion really means for me as a, as a spiritual leader, not just a man, but a leader who's trying to discern his heart for our congregation and for the moment of time that we find ourselves in. Um, boy, somebody who loves me that much, mm-hmm. I want to spend my rest of my rest of my life honoring him. Yep. 
And I think yep. culturally, that that is the thing that makes me the saddest around this issue, uh, around the sexual brokenness and wholeness issue, is that that humanity is losing its ability to be honorable. And we think of honorability as old-fashioned or as religious, but really honorability is is recognizing the inherent goodness of something bigger than us and choosing to live in reflection of that goodness. Mm-hmm. And and it's a gift you give yourself. It's a, it's a gift your children give themselves to choose to live honorably honorably before the Lord. Because yep. um, I, I believe the Bible is clear that inside of man, inside of creation, is this heartbeat of understanding what is true and honorable. There's a desire to be good. Um, but sin in the world makes us... Um, just confuses and causes that temptation to lead us astray. And so in that is that that conflict that Jesus truly solves. Um, and, you know, how do, we, how do we message that to our community? I say it from the pulpit almost every week, that my job is to make you comfortable. My job is to bring you to the point of conflict. Because in the conflict, you now know that, that there's a problem that you have to solve, not just a tension that you have to manage. There is a conflict between who you know God wants you to be and who you currently are walking in. And the only mediator for that conflict is Jesus Christ. Mm. And the more that we can bring our community confidently to that, that precipice, uh, I think the more the Holy Spirit has access to heart. Yep, Absolutely. And I think the um, what you guys are learning to practice, and I mean, have been for a while now, um, that I see lacking in a, in a lot of churches, and not because there's a lack of of effort um, or trying to get the right program or trying to develop the right small group, you know, curriculum or whatever, uh, but it's you know, it, we can we can attempt to do all those things, but it's almost like you know, getting a bunch of porcupines together to try to have fellowship. You know, we, we're so afraid of somebody knowing us and we're so the component that I love, um, that, that you guys are really pressing into is, is this authentic discipleship is this band of brothers model, this band of sisters model that that really is about being fully known. And in the, in the being fully known, the good, the bad, the ugly, that's the only environment in which we can really experience being fully loved because no matter how much somebody loves us, um, or, and we perceive that they love us or they're trying to love us. As long as we have all these dark secrets that nobody knows about us, we always have that thing going through the back of our mind. Yeah. But if they only knew me, if they only knew who I really was or what I've done or what's been done to me. But once those, those secrets are out, um, in, in that context, I'm not saying we should just run out and blab them from the rooftops, but in that context of, of a band of brothers, band of sisters, that has agreed to confidentiality and that kind of thing. Once they're known in that context and we still see people, not what I find is that people move toward us more. What I find is that people are, um, they, yeah. they grow to love us more because of our vulnerability and our failures, not, not, be, not less because of those things. So, you know, one other thing I just wanted to, to ask you about, um, you mentioned uh, when I've been at your church and just talking about, you know, Hey, what, what are we what are we doing as a church, you know, coming at the LGBT community with pitchforks and, you know, just with, with anger kind of, and, 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 and rage or, or just not wanting to have anything to do with them. I mean, I, I, that's all true. Yes. 
But the other thing that I've I've talked about wherever I speak or teach or preach or do conferences or whatever, and I remember distinctly um, having these conversations um, at your church as well, is that um, I used to think for years that I was uniquely broken. I said this before, and 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 your words, I mean, uniquely dirty or perverted or uh, just just so um, vile in so many ways is really how I saw myself in relationship to others. And, um, and that was especially true because of um, same-sex attraction, because of going off into the LGBT community, living the life as a gay man for a period, you know, number of years. And, um, and, I, I, and so I really saw myself as being so other than, you know, typical men. Mm-hmm. And what I've now realized, um, I mean, there, there was a huge flaw in that. I mean, there's a huge flaw in all kinds of things there. But this huge flaw in this idea, and I see it lived out in the church, I see it lived out kind of outside the church as well, is that, um, is that somehow, you know, I was a part of a community that's like a subset of the male population. And that, you know, I, I, um, I'm so that because of my sexual desires or romantic desires, I'm so different from other guys. And what I've realized is, yeah, there's, there's some differences and some things that need to be kind of worked out on their own. There's nuance around all this, but the truth is I'm a dude. I mean, I, I'm a part of the yeah. male population. I'm, yeah. uh, you know, God, God created binary human beings, male and female, period. And, um, and, and what I've, what I, I know I've spoken at your church is that, um, when it comes to knowing who we are as image bearers of God, we are all identity confused. I mean, we, right. we don't just naturally, it isn't like, oh, the heterosexual population is doing so wonderfully and, and living out everything in such a godly manner. And then you have the LGBT population uh, that's so broken. It's like, no, th- it's, it's just a, we're kind of on a spectrum of brokenness. And, um, and, and there, there are some within the LGBT community, frankly, that are more compassionate, loving, gracious than there are plenty of other people in the, in the heterosexual population. So, but yeah. so it's not, it's not like us and them, or you're a subset of the population. It's like, it, it's more of, you know what, we want to, we want to all know what it means to be more like Jesus and to really embrace and live out this identity that God has given us. And, um, and, and we're, we want to, we want to do this journey together, not as, you know, we're one group helping those poor folk. Um, but rather let's yeah. do this together in, in this open and vulnerable way. Um, I don't know with thoughts, I guess, particularly about LGBT community and how, how you feel like the church yeah. can best love and minister to them. Yeah, I, I think the, the the thing that really comes to mind on that is we are we are a nation. Honestly, we're a people that uh, gather based off of preference. Mm-hmm. And when you don't know who you are core at your core, you begin to describe yourself by your preferences. Um, so I, I, I like all all sports teams in Philadelphia. So I I, I was at a, a Phillies game for the very first time, and the stadium was filled with Phillies fans. It was the most exciting baseball game I'd ever been to, regardless of the game, but because I was surrounded by people who agreed with me. Yeah. It was so exhilarating to have that many fans. I'd never been in that experience before living in New York. Um, and I just got thinking about why was that exhilarating to me? Why? I have zero in common past the fact that we both have giant peas on our chest. Like, this is ridiculous that I would feel some sort of camaraderie with this individual but we are so motivated by our preferences that we, we, we feel like we have things in common with people that we really don't. 
mm-hmm. uh, just because we don't know who we are. And that, that's unfortunate. And, and that carries out into all manner of things. You see that in politics right now. You see that across the board in almost everything that happens. When you were in elementary school, as a, as a fifth grade school teacher, I would have a new student in my class. They'd arrive at 830 in the morning. And by lunchtime, I knew which group they were going to be a part of. They just figured it out. Within yep. the first three periods, they by lunch knew I yep, that's he's gonna be in that group, she's gonna be in that group. Um, because based off their preferences, they found people that they agreed with because that made them feel comfortable. And so the problem with the church is when our faith is a preference, we will vilify people who don't prefer that. Mm. And we can't we can't be moved to compassion. Jesus, what you see in scripture is he preferred no one. He preferred his father. And so then that allowed him to be open and graceful with everyone because there were no temporal preferences that he was projecting because he said, whatever the father says, I say, wherever the father tells me to go, I go. I am here to execute my father's will mm-hmm. and, and glorify his name. And that's it. So if I actually could do that in real time and I wasn't living my life based on my preferences what, what I would do is I would see every heart as an opportunity to glorify God. And their sin conditions in the major list from Romans chapter 1 is no different than my sin conditions in the major list from Romans chapter yep. 1. And so I can connect with them, not off of, do I agree with them? Do I look like them? Do they think like me? Do they act like me? No, they, they have the image of the Father on them. And if I can... I can connect my spirit with their spirit, and we both are communing with the Lord, then there's access to something way more dynamic than I could ever imagine could happen. And so the church has done a bad job of of, of getting away from being preference-driven in the way that we communicate the gospel. We are no different than the world a lot of times along that, which is why we become so ripe for hypocrisy mm-hmm. and compromise. The church looks basically the same as the Elks Club on almost all social issues. And and we have to do a better job of, of understanding Jesus did not base his ministry on preference. Yeah, yeah that's so well stated, so important. Um, and again, just brings us full circle to this need for um, uh, not, I, I love that, that word picture of, so I've got a huge P for Philadelphia, you know, plastered on my chest like everybody else. And, and, and yet, and the, the truth is, even when we've been in a church for 20 years, sometimes that's the extent of how we know people around us. Like we know, Correct. we know lots of, we know a lot more about people's um, lives and make, we might know about their job. We might know about, you know, their kids' names and, and this thing or that, but we don't know one another's hearts any more than you knew the heart of the people sitting around you um, in that stadium. And that's tragic when you've been together for such a long time in the church. And I feel like that is so much of where God wants to bring us back to. And when mm-hmm. we get, when we get there, when we break through those walls of, of, um, of shame and um, separation uh, and secrecy and all of that, that the enemy has really tricked us into that, into those places. Um, when we break through those, I believe that the church is going to have something that is so rich that, that the world and particularly younger generations are starving for, like they really want those kinds of relationships. They want to see that kind of authenticity, um, lived out in, in real time, in real ways. 
And the church has the capacity to do that. That's why I'm so hopeful um, for what um, what what God can do and desires to do um, and what he's created the church to be um, for for those who don't yet. We're blessed to be a blessing, you know, and for those who don't yet know Jesus or for those that know him nominally, nominally, that uh, when we as older, not elder brothers like the prodigal brother, but as older brothers and sisters who love Jesus and love others. Um, when we're willing to crack open, let God crack open our lives and see the real us, that's where the the real ministry, I think, um, happens. And that's what people are hungry for and they don't even know it. Yeah, you know, so. we have a, a few different couples in our town that walk around and, and uh, we were at church one, one Sunday and, and um, I, heard, I overheard somebody say to this couple, I saw you guys walking and it just blessed my heart to see you guys look genuinely happy. You mm-hmm. were smiling. And I was, it made me feel optimistic just watching you guys go for a walk. Um, a lot of people hear this message and they say, oh, we've got to deconstruct church. We can't gather together anymore. We, it's got to be these little tiny pockets and church yep. is bad. Church is amazing. It mm-hmm. is the entity that God designed for us to exercise our faith in. But what we can do is, is not neglect the fact that my personal journey of authenticity with two, three, four people is going to, it's going to spark passion in somebody that maybe I won't walk right next to. I, I don't have to be in a band of brothers with, yes. with all 250, 250 people in my church. Right. Um, I, but, but my willingness to be authentic will, will number one, give me confidence and boldness to speak, but also will, will illuminate, I believe, the way that I go about my relationships and will encourage somebody else to want that same that same thing. And 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 then we do that together. We gather together and we we celebrate together. Just just like you go to a stadium and the roar of one fan mixed with two or three other fans makes just creates passion. Um how much more so when we're not just fans, we're sons and daughters yeah. celebrating with each other about how the goodness, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness, the power that is inherent in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's it's dynamic. And you talk about the younger generation. They're hearing so much social um, conversation uh, pushing them to be identified by their preferences. The very thing that I just talked about is being, the, the enemy is pushing it so hard on these mm-hmm. children. And so if we try to do the exact same thing, just in a different direction, we are white noise. What we have to do is say, listen, you are a child of the Most High God, and he made you on purpose and with a purpose, and we want to help you to find those two things. And then don't worry about where their preferences lie. Begin to walk with them, begin to talk with them, enter in conversations with them that, well, let's, let's see what our Father, who is so good and merciful, what he said about that. The inerrancy of Scripture becomes a, a gift to us and, and not like a, an anchor. Some people are, ah, the Word of God is hard. It's, we, we can't quote it directly because they don't want to hear the Bible anymore. No, this, this Bible is a gift because it's alive. Yes. And in, in the places where I, my arrogance or my lack of, lack of compassion get in the way, Scripture has a way of just getting right to the root and, and really ministering in a way that, that I, I just can't. I can't produce in that moment. Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate your time, uh, Matt, just sharing with us. Um, I love the the perspective of of a pastor who's um, 
you know, none of us are doing it perfectly, but a pastor is really pressing into this um, relational component along with other things. Thank you so much for joining us for this Love and Truth Network podcast. To listen to or watch future episodes, please check us out at loveandtruthnetwork.com forward slash podcast. Also, you can subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and we look forward to seeing you in a future episode.